imagine if you had to you wanted to make zaps work at twitter you'd you'd have to first go get a job at twitter and then you'd have to like convince so many people it's just like such a mess whereas if you're like oh i'm i'm gonna build domus and i'm gonna do zaps and i'm gonna build snort social i'm gonna do zaps and we'll just make it work because we think it should exist I, I i like to think of it as almost like gravity wells or like you know where is water flow where is value probably going to accrue or where will there be some centralization aspects just because like the structure of the system is going to cause them to exist capital is a tool that helps people assemble and build things that are more future thinking instead of you know always being just like you know i need to to get the bread for today but i think it's going to be challenging for a relay who is operating at like small scale to capture much margin unless they provide something that's very unique and differentiated you know noster without bitcoin would probably have to remain just a small hobbyist project forever noster with bitcoin i think can really change the shape of how publishing works on the internet writ large david king has been an early google product manager an angel investor for more than a decade and is now also a creator exploring the convergence of Noster, Bitcoin, and startups. In our conversation, we explored the parallels between Google's early days and Noster's early days. We discussed how the Lightning Network and Noster may or may not work together. And we discussed how the open internet may change the fundraising landscape and, and early stage investment opportunities for angel investors. David has also been added to today's show splits. So if you enjoy this episode and if you learn something new, the best way that you can show your support for myself and David is by sending in sats over the Lightning Network. You can use any podcasting 2.0 app. There are dozens of them, but my favorite to use is Fountain. Before we get into today's show, just a quick message from our sponsors. Today's show is sponsored by Voltage. Voltage is the premier provider of Bitcoin and Lightning node infrastructure. Today's show is also sponsored by Stackwork. And Stackwork is a lightning powered transcription tool that takes the best of AIs and humans to create better, faster, and less expensive transcripts. We'll have more from Voltage and Stackwork later in the show. David, welcome to the show. I am so excited to talk about Lightning, about Noster, about your, your career in tech. There's a lot of stuff to cover today, but before we get into it, why don't we step back and have you tell listeners a little bit about your career in tech. You, uh, you've worked at Google, you've been an angel investor, you're now involved in Lightning and Noster, tons of stuff to cover. Why don't you give everyone the high level background and how you discovered Bitcoin? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for, for inviting me to the show. Um, I've been a big fan for a long time and, and know your name in the space, so uh, it's exciting. I'm a little bit early in my career as a creator in the space, but it's exciting to sort of be on one of the, uh, the shows that I had a lot of respect for. So, the, um, so, you know, kind of to cover my career, I've, I've sort of, you know, grew up on the internet. I'd say like got involved in the internet in the eighties and nineties when I, you know, had like, you know, my dad had a computer at home and we had a dial up modem and, um, and I've just sort of been obsessed with it my whole life. And so any, any, thing new that you can do with the internet has always, you know, it's just sort of been a thread in my life. And uh, so I grew up programming, uh, in, you know, on the internet a lot, studied computer science and, uh, and engineering. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to come out to the Valley right after the dot-com crash and was very involved in startups here in Silicon Valley for uh, 
the last 23 years or so now it's been. And uh, I was fortunate to join Google early on back when it was only a search engine. So before it was kind of, you know, everything on the internet it used to just be a great search engine. Uh, there was no, you know, maps and Gmail and Android and YouTube and all that. But that came about while I was there. So I sort of got to see from the inside what hyper growth looks like and sort of what a, a platform that became, you know, started as kind of a feature, a, a feature of a web portal. And then it kind of grew to become like, you know, the everything information source on the internet, um, you know, for, for both the goods and the bads that come with that. Um, I, I left Google in 2007 because I thought that Google was not very effective at creating spaces on the internet. And I thought there was like a lot of, you know, the, the stuff that I recall from my childhood, you know, playing on BBSs and playing on early internet stuff was all about the people you gather with and how you bump into new people. And, you know, Google has lots of great utilities, but didn't have anything around how people gather. And that was a problem that I thought was really interesting. And I think we've seen it play out in many ways. We've seen it, you know, within Facebook and Twitter and all kinds of other, you know, social connectivity tools. Um, so I worked on, you know, that kind of stuff. I actually ended up starting one of the first gaming companies when Facebook launched their platform, grew it to 45 million users, sold it, now part of Walt Disney. Uh, and I've just been really interested in, you know, kind of how people gather online uh, for a long time. Um, you, and you asked about Bitcoin. So I first uh, connected to the idea of Bitcoin via a gentleman named Vences Casares, who kind of brought the Bitcoin story to Silicon Valley uh, back, I don't know, about 10 plus years ago. And, um, you know, he he uh, founded a company called Zappo, which was one of the early kind of Bitcoin kind of custodians and banks. And I think they have some exchange services too. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, he sort of, you know, told the story. Everybody kind of got excited, but I didn't really see what could be built on Bitcoin. It felt more like, oh, that's cool. It's a curiosity. It's a toy. It's interesting. Um, but I don't know that it necessarily appeals to like the kind of builder, investor, startup side of, of me. So I kind of was aware, but not super active. And um, and then sort of followed the path that I think a lot of people follow, like, oh, well, maybe there's these other things where you can actually do more building. And so was sort of attracted to the, the craze of learning about all the other potential currencies out there and what else could be done and are smart contracts a thing and, you know, what else could be built? And I think sort of, you know, quickly figured out probably money is good enough. If we can just make money work well, that'll be an exciting future. Uh, and there's a lot of problems to solve in that. And so um, so I've sort of been, I'd say, still more just spectator, helper from time to time, um, you know, interested individual. But I don't, um, I, you know, I, I don't have any actual like full-time job in the Bitcoin ecosystem, let's say. Um, but I have been interested in this problem of how people gather online for so long. And I bumped into Noster about a year or so ago and thought it was like cool and important, but I was like, oh, I don't see like a reference implementation. We need some reference implementation if we're going to be able to actually see if this is a good place to gather and how that works. Um, and so sort of, you know, year went on, kept dabbling in other things. And then um, I think when uh, Jack Dorsey made the the deployment of the 14 Bitcoin and kind of made some noise about it, it actually created enough social consensus that enough people were gathered and it kind of became a real gathering point. Um, and, you know, more people became curious about it. So that, uh, that you know, I, I sort of feel like I've had a prepared mind on this thing for like 15 years and now it's actually happening, you know, um, early days still, but it's happening. So 
I, um, I've just kind of been spending all of my time now, you know, I basically just want to like meet everybody working on it, meet everybody building on it, figure out how I can be helpful. You know, I've been making videos with people and, and, you know, making a podcast, uh, just to sort of create more connectivity and get more of the messages out. So I call myself a, a Noster student and a Noster storyteller. Um, but I'm just here to kind of learn and meet people and want to figure out how I can pitch in and be helpful. Very cool. Well, this is exactly what, what I'd like to do today is, is learn, learn about you, uh, learn from you about Noster and, and think about how, you know, like you've gone through so many of these like hyper growth phases that you talked about with Google and you've just, you've seen technology develop over the last 20 years. I'd love to learn, uh, first, maybe we can dive into, you know, how does the hyper growth that you saw at Google compare to what you're starting to see happen on Noster now, where there is real excitement? It may be at it may be at a smaller scale, but there's there's genuine excitement and there's a lot of there's a lot of metrics that that look like rocket ships right now. They just yeah. all the the Noster user numbers and Zap numbers um, they've really picked up in the last month or two, and they've. It, it's it's sustained over the last month or two. It hasn't just been a flash yep. in the pan, like one day everyone's on and the next day everyone's off. Yep. I'd love to get your perspective on on your time at Google there, especially in the earliest days, 2003, when, you know, coming out of the dot-com crash, there weren't many believers. Uh, and this was a little bit too early for me to to experience this. I was, I was a little too young to, to really understand what was going on at the time. Um, but are there any interesting like stories or moments that you learned at Google? Any any particular like inflection points where you went, "Wow, Google is really on to something special here." Yeah, I mean, it's it's a common pattern I'd say across technology that um, the things that are really impactful start and kind of have a lot of they galvanize a lot of interest from a very specific set of people early on. And it may not be, it may feel like it doesn't look very broad based. Um, you know, like I remember a lot of people early at Google were like, you know, Linux hackers and like playing around with Linux. And that was like not really a big, I mean, it was big enough that people were aware of it, but it wasn't, you know, like a really big thing. Um, and, and to be clear, at the time I joined Google, um, it was already definitely really working and it, it, it really was a rocket ship, but there was no Twitter. There wasn't a lot of media coverage and they purposely kept it quiet. So it wasn't until after I joined and I saw the numbers internally and I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is actually a thing. I thought it was just like a cool thing to work on. And it was, I remember telling my parents that I was, you know, getting a job at Google and they were like, oh, well, isn't that just a website? Like, doesn't it already work? <laughs> it, it it didn't have the, it felt more niche and, and weird in that way, but internally it was definitely working. It was, you know, definitely a vertical wall, but I think it appealed to a certain type of person who liked the internet, liked kind of hacking, liked this information freedom that the internet was producing in a way. It was sort of all the, you know, we don't think of Google as that today, right? Because we think of it as like the, the big one, but it used to be the underdog. It used to be the thing, you know, used to be the thing that was like helping enable, uh, you know, Library of Alexandria, or you sort of have the ability to connect people to all kinds of information basically for free. And that was a really exciting, exciting time. Um, but I think I've, you know, both at Google and then as well, other projects, you know, companies I've been involved with and invested in, um, you know, from the early days when something is working, it usually has that, this aspect that we're seeing in Noster today, which is it really deeply appeals to like a very niche 
interest group in it, but it really galvanizes that. So I think like if you look in Noster today, it's just the usage is just oxygen for more good luck to happen to the thing. Um, the problem with technologies is when you build a technology that doesn't have that kind of galvanizing ability, even with a niche group, it doesn't kind of get the oxygen to discover what it should be. And when you start with a tight-knit group that really wants to be there, despite nobody really getting it or a lot of outsiders thinking this is nonsense or crazy or not worth spending your time on, um, the fact that there's a focus group that really, really loves it means you know we all show up on Noster every day and we write notes and we throw sats at each other and we joke around and, and shakas and hearts and stuff. That gives it oxygen. That means that someday, you know, Jack Dorsey shows up and then someday Edward Snowden shows up and then someday it hits the App Store. And each one of these events is like an exogenous positive impact on the ability of Noster to grow because there's, you know, it just, it lives long enough to have these somewhat random events occur that help it grow. And that's, you know, the same thing, you know, we saw those kinds of events happen uh, at Google and at YouTube and um, we saw, you know, watching Twitter as an outsider spectator, but we saw that happen at Twitter, you know, as an early user of Twitter and saw that happen um, at Twitter. And so I think it it has a lot of the right characteristics that it's just enough people care about it and keep using it. And then it has enough of the right abstracts that it's public domain. It's not controlled by anybody. You know, there's definitely people who have more influence than others, um, but there's no like central point of control. And I think the people who do have more influence actually want to have less influence, which is like a really good, good characteristic. So it gives me a lot of optimism that this will follow some of the similar patterns of kind of growth and usage that we've seen in other technologies, which have turned out to be successful. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Now, when you, when you look back at your time at Google, I guess, starting at the earliest uh, stage in 2003, um, were there any, any factors or themes Outside of the 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 fact that Google's kind of monopolized search, any any particular threads that you noticed that that really made Google so successful? Anything that you know stuck out to you as like just maybe the way the organization operated or the types of people it attracted? Anything else outside of the actual search um, that that really made Google a success? Yeah, I mean, I think you know one thing is because it was led by engineers, it was attractive to engineers. So the best engineers want to work with other great engineers. And so once you get the ball rolling on that, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, like more great people want to be around people that they respect. And by getting that right in the early days, that sort of continued for a long time. You know, I think at the scale it is today, there's still plenty of great people, but I, I don't think it has sort of that same, you know, it's probably hundreds of thousands of people work there. I don't know. But um, probably sort of a different feel doesn't have that kind of somewhat more club-like feel that it, it used to have. Um, but but I think there's that. And then I think also, like, they just, they really hit on a thing that was really important. And they executed it well. But I think it was just so important that it almost kind of was, you know, it, it was kind of running away in a way that you couldn't really control. So you just wanted to guide it to be the best version of what it was trying to be instead of, you know, you could have guided it in ways that you would really screw it up. And I think um, the leadership there, uh, you know, was really cognizant about what service they 
were, you know, how you would make a decision to make sure that you're making the right kinds of things that are in service of the long term. So I think Google's very long term thinking, like, you know, it, back in the day, it used to be very common to do, you know, like what was called paid inclusion, where you kind of have something that looks like an organic result, but it's actually a really paid result. And Larry Page was very adamant about keeping organic and ads separate and being clear that earning trust from users was like the holy grail. Like if you ever lose trust, if you ever do anything that compromises trust, um, that like the whole thing falls apart and unravels. Uh, so I think there were a lot of, you know, really good principles that were established, you know, both from having, you know, having engineering leadership and attracting great engineers and great people around that. Um, and then just being in the middle of this, you know, kind of, I mean, it was a little bit of like a tornado of new information coming online, which compounds more search queries, which means more places to go. And there's all these compounding flywheels to that, which, which couldn't be stopped, but it did need to be ushered and guided in a way that was in respect of users' needs and of kind of the long-term and not trying to do kind of short-term, maybe higher monetization, but but kind of more short-term tactical things. It was very, very long-term, very strategic thinking. I see. Now, can these, can these elements of, you, know, you talked about the engineering leadership and the fact that great engineers are attracted to other great engineers. Can that idea be replicated on an open protocol like Nostr where you're not necessarily all at the same company, right? You're not all working together, you know, next to each other every day. It's a different environment, uh, but does that same principle still apply? Do you think that that these great engineers will eventually migrate to a protocol in the same way that they migrate to the same company? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we we already see this kind of stuff. You know, I think a great example would be Linux, right? Like, kind of grew up early in the '90s, and it was just like a hacker project, and it attracted lots of other hackers who were really talented and wanted to see that vision of the world succeed. And I think ultimately that vision of the world did succeed. And it's, you know, Linux is used in billions of computing, you know, experiences every day. But um but it doesn't it didn't succeed in the way we expected. It it sort of took a different path. But the kind of the abstracts, the principles were correct, but the implementation and kind of the path that it took was maybe different than what people predicted. But yeah, I think I think people do you know, even though it's open source, it's it. I don't think that means it can't attract the right people. I think it will attract the right people. It does have the challenge that you know, without a you know, without sort of an obvious kind of capital monetization motive, it's harder, I think, to assemble human teams to accomplish great things together. Um, not that it can't be done. We see lots of evidence of how it does get done, but it's just slower when you don't have that so obviously, you know, capital is a tool that helps people assemble and build things that are more future thinking instead of, you know, always being just like, you know, I need to, to get the bread for today. So I, I do think it can still work, even though it's outside of a centralized company like Google. And it may in fact work better because, you know, there's always more people outside any given company than are inside that company. Uh, even great, great people, great thinkers, people who want to contribute and who are motivated either as hobbyists or eventually have potential to become full-time contributors. So I think um, it, it, 
it has the potential to attract even more people to get brains thinking about it, get work being done on it than any given centralized company can digest. So I, I would say I'm optimistic that that pattern at a high level can be repeated and may even be more strongly repeated, but just in a very different looking way. Mm, interesting. Now I want to, I want to hear about your transition now from Google to what you've been doing for the last decade or so as, as an angel investor, what was it that made you, you know, go, I'm, I'm going to leave Google and I'm going to start investing. Why investing? What's, why was capital so important in Silicon Valley at the time? And what kind of drew you into the investing ecosystem and investing at the earliest stage too? Yeah. So I, I would say that I, um, I only, I, I don't even identify really as an investor as like my main, you know, endeavor for the last 10 years. I, I have done a lot of it, but it's kind of always been a bit more of a, uh, I almost call it like a, uh, when the opportunities present themselves, you know, I, I see them and I do them, but I don't otherwise, uh, you know, create, a profession out of it, if that makes sense. Um, so I wouldn't sort of say that that's, you know, I, I do a lot of different things. I try to help startups in a lot of different ways and kind of technology builders. Um, but, you know, like back, I guess when I was starting, it was probably in the range of like 10 to 13 years ago, I think, somewhere in that range. And, you know, I just had a lot of friends who I knew from either Google or the startup ecosystem that I had been playing in since I'd left Google, you know, at that point it'd been at least four or five years. And so I just was really connected to the startup ecosystem here in San Francisco. And I knew a lot of people starting companies. A lot of my friends were starting companies. And so I wasn't saying, oh, I'm going to go be an investor. I was saying, oh, my friend's starting a company. Oh, I should invest. Like, I like hanging out with them. I like learning about what they're working on. I think I can help in some ways. Like I'm probably connected to a bunch of people that they are not connected to that could help, help accelerate their business, get them off the ground faster. Um, so I would say it's, it's, uh, yeah, more like, you know, it just happens, you know, when it happens, you know, and it, it, it can be great like that, but I don't find sort of it as a very structured process. At least I haven't done a very structured approach to it. Maybe the way many people who would do kind of investing as a profession would, would, would do. Right. So are, are there any particular themes that you noticed among some of these friends that you, you know, helped some of these friends that you invest in their companies, um, any particular trends you noticed about the ones that succeeded, the ones that failed and how to identify where, you know, your time and money was best spent. Yeah. Oh man. It's, you know, the, the thing about the, the investing at this early stage is that there's so many, you know, everything's special in its own way. And I think, you know, for me, a lot of it is just like, if it's two people in a garage and they have an idea, but there's no real product or traction or anything to share. It's like, what can you do? But to say it, like, I believe these people, I believe that these people are, you know, like they're both determined enough to keep pushing forward, but they're also flexible enough to figure out when what they're doing isn't working and figure out how to navigate that path. And then also they're surrounded by enough other people who can also help. And so a big part of it is like, are people surrounding themselves with networks that are 
geared up to help them, right? It's like, you know, people say you're sort of the average of the five people you spend all your time with. I mean, are you spending your time with people who are optimistic and ambitious and themselves well-networked so that when you need one hop away, you can pull that resource relationship, you know, help in? Um, I think all the ones that have worked have ultimately been like, you know, highly networked, like meaning people who have somehow found their way to get in the middle of all of the interesting people that, you know, have relationships. And then they, you know, a lot of experimentation, a lot of times people have been starting with a hypothesis and then figuring out along the way which aspects of it do work and which aspects don't work, but then being both that determination with that flexibility is kind of a, a tough pairing, you know, uh, but I think those are the types of things that I would say, you know, what, what the great things look like at the very earliest stage. Right. Now, I, I was just looking up your background prior to this, this call, and uh, I noticed you had done investments in things like Clubhouse and Quora, Open Door, Mercury Bank, many others, very successful names. When you first started doing this angel investing and just chatting with friends that were starting companies, did you expect that the upside could be as high as you know billions of dollars as we see in the market cap of some of these companies? Or was this, was this all sort of still a little unprecedented in Silicon Valley? Like there were a couple examples of you know, Google and maybe Facebook at the time started to get really big, but, but it wasn't really widely known that this could be uh, a valuable kind of endeavor. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit in the water here where when things are happening and trends are shaping, um, you start to notice them and everybody's kind of talking about them at dinners and, you know, hikes and stuff. So word gets out, maybe not, you know, maybe it wasn't so much on Twitter in the same way, but, you know, among kind of people networks. I think a, a major trend that I think was not so obvious to the world back then, it was, you know, obvious to anybody around here paying attention, is that, um, you know, and credit, you know, Paul Graham, credit Y Combinator, but they made the observation that uh, that the um, the cloud compute that was being built out with Amazon and GCP was enabling a whole new class of of an entrepreneur who's often more technical, more experimental, and can push something out quickly to try things. And that idea resonated with a lot of people. And so I was, you know, I was going to the Y Combinator demo days and seeing lots of examples of people who were building new things that were, you know, many of which didn't work, but some of which worked a little bit. And then you kind of got a sense like, oh, if you squint, if you see like dozens of things and you see a few of them that kind of work okay, and then you can kind of see like the passion and energy that these people are bringing to this endeavor, you can kind of squint and say, you know, I think there are really big things that could emerge from this Petri dish of activity, but it's never about, it's never about like, oh, like I think the world needs a new search engine, or I think the world needs a new social network. It's like, there's just entrepreneurial energy working to solve problems that people have recognized themselves or, you know, build products that they've been excited about. And if that energy is palpable and then it spreads through the networks and you learn about these things. So it, you know, it, I would say it was not so obvious that these could all be like billion dollar companies back, you know, back in kind of that earlier stage, but there was definitely enough signal among kind of people networks. And I would credit Y Combinator as being one of the, one of the community hubs that a lot of people gathered around 
Uh, but that builds a lot of relationships. And then also, you know, outside of Y Combinator, there was plenty of stuff that was also interesting kind of on those same trends of like lower the cost to start a startup and you get more experimentation and innovation. And I think that actually has a lot in common with, with what gets me excited about Noster is that um, you've sort of lowered the barrier for what it takes to, let's just say, even from the Twitter clones, which I think Noster's a lot more than Twitter clones. But even just among the Twitter clones, I think what you've done is you've lowered the barrier for what it takes to build a feature on a Twitter-like experience. You used to have to like go apply for a job at Twitter and then you know write a proposal or get some product manager to agree that your feature makes sense and then get prioritized with the thousands of other features that other people want to launch. You've lowered the barrier for, for that now. You can just build a feature and if people like it, they'll use it and then everybody will adopt it. It's like what we saw happen with Zaps, right? Like we're kind of seeing that real time mm. where imagine if you had to, you wanted to make Zaps work at Twitter, you'd, you'd have to first go get a job at Twitter and then you'd have to like convince so many people. It's just like such a mess. Whereas if you're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to build Domus and I'm going to do Zaps and I'm going to build Snort Social, I'm going to do Zaps and we'll just make it work because we think it should exist. So I think what's exciting about it is that you are enabling more innovation more shots on goal, more people who are inspired or who have ideas to try them out, which is, I think, very in common with what we saw kind of in the Y Combinator era of kind of the sort of, you know, making technology building accessible to more people. So now if you expand the number of people that can innovate, right, as you said, happened at Y Combinator and is now happening even more on Noster and, you know, you open the doors, you democratize access to, to, uh, you know, being able to build, does that also then in turn increase the, uh, the potential for capturing value as a business? Do you expect to see that, you know, we saw Y Combinator kind of open the, the floodgates for all these tech startups that, that went on to become unicorns. Will we see the same or, or more of that? on Noster now where anyone can innovate and they don't have to ask Twitter for permission? Yeah, this this is the trillion dollar question. Uh, I, and I would say, I, I, you know, I, I think through these things and I debate it with people real time every day, but I wouldn't say I'm convinced one way or the other. I do think that, um, that it is going to be a net positive for technology and the wealth of humanity, not in monetary terms necessarily, but I think for the access to information, the customized client experiences, just better technology, more open source technology and more people's hands that serve more people's specific needs, I think it's just going to massively increase kind of, you know, the wealth of the world. Now, how much of that will be sort of dispersed and not capturable? My guess is it's a tremendous amount. Will there be some small fraction of that? So can you can you like you know, 10x or 100x the amount of wealth in the world, but non-monetary wealth, but just like value that humanity has. I think that's absolutely, I mean, I'd say 99% convinced that's just going to happen with with this kind of system and kind of the incentives. Is there opportunity to capture value? Who's going to capture it? What do the value capture points look like? I'd say it's like, I'd say like a big shrug. I don't know. Like it, it may be that it's just, 100x bigger and you can capture you know 10x less value but that's still like a huge win compared to where we are today so 
I, I would say it's like a real time thing worth worth discussing. But I think it's you know it's not going to look the same as it did back then. So it's not going to be you know it's probably not going to be like buy equity in a U.S. based startup that's selling shares, and you know they're going to hire all the people to build an open source client. Like that, that doesn't seem credible because when you decouple the client and the the data store, I think you also really shift the the game for how value could be captured. So instead of trying to capture value in ways that it that the system doesn't make sense, I think you have to try to identify the gravity wells in the system. Like where is value probably going to accrue, or where will there be some centralization aspects? Just because like the structure of the system is going to cause them to exist. And if you can do those or find those, um, I think there could be some value capture, kind of both, you know, kind of monetary value capture through ownership, you know, minority ownership of such a thing. So I think those, that's what like a good investment opportunity may look like. Uh, but I wouldn't say that it's like guaranteed exactly how that's going to play out. Now, I do think, um, you know, probably the best way to invest in Noster today is just to like, you know, play with it and, you know, spend your time figuring out what you like and forming a taste and opinion about where, you know, sort of where all of the value will accrue and how people will navigate this ecosystem so that you have a prepared mind for if and when there is an opportunity to make investments. Um, but uh, but besides spending your time, I mean, the other thing, you know, the other thing that seems obvious to me is like, I think this, that Nostra represents the first really unique, great use case for Bitcoin and Lightning. Like, I think we have lots of hypotheses and examples of cool things happening in the world, but I think the sort of, you know, loose affiliation between relay operators who incur real costs and client developers and users are all fairly loosely affiliated and have lots of interchangeability of those relationships, but there is real value transferred. I think that's like use case number one, for why Bitcoin and Lightning is needed to help facilitate those relationships. Um, so I, I think if you know one way to invest in this ecosystem is buy Bitcoin, um, but but I but that might not be satisfying because probably people already are excited about that. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just a quick message from our sponsor, Voltage. Voltage empowers engineers to integrate Bitcoin and Lightning network payments into their business stack with an enterprise grade experience. The team at Voltage is building the complete tool set so that you can do more than simply spin up nodes, but also understand and interpret your node's data. Their new product, Surge, gives engineers the capability to quickly solve problems and optimize operations. With node insights and visibility through time series data, you get dynamic and complex insights never available before. You can get complete control with insanely fast onboarding, advanced client-side encryption, and zero management infrastructure making backups, networking, and upgrades simple. Get a free seven-day trial today at Voltage.cloud. I want to touch on the, the point you made about value creation on Noster. So not necessarily value capture, but the you mentioned that you know we could see a 10x or 100x in the wealth of the world in terms of like access to information. That That's a mind-blowing figure to me. I, I can't quite wrap my head around how that all works. Can you can you elaborate on where you see this value creation, how you quantify it, and, and how this all might unfold? 
Yeah, I mean, it's. I think you know, I'm I'm not going to give you a chart and a mathematical formula that gets to the hundred x, right? It's more uh, a Fair point. <laughs> it's more a point that um, the the fundamental structure, the abstracts that we're working with here, are just really new, and so the architecture of publishing is really new, and it really blows open the way our historical monopolies worked on the internet. So anytime there was a monopoly, you now have the opportunity to sort of serve the some of the main purposes of those monopolies, but do so with this new publishing architecture that can now be customized in, you know, literally infinite ways, but you know, probably we'll see thousands of great examples of what a, you know, what what should a Twitter like you know, Twitter-like service look like, I think we're going to see thousands of examples and lots of innovation there. And so if we have thousands of, you know, uh, people banging on that problem, uh, I think we're going to discover things that we never knew existed. And some of them will surprise us and they'll end up being worth way more than we could have imagined. But, um, but I think you just need sort of a healthy Petri dish to experiment. So I'd say sort of there's the, the, the net good of having open source software that everybody who wants can try things is one way to create lots of value similar to Y Combinator. Like most, most early Y Combinator companies, most Y Combinators today still fail, but it enables some really, really big successes that probably wouldn't have been possible with the old investing ecosystem where you had to have a Harvard MBA and you had to go, you know, up and down Sand Hill road to get your first $5 million to try out an idea that that old model gave way to a new model. And I think similarly centralized, Providers have shown us some of the fundamentals of how value gets created on the internet, but now we have a new architecture that lets us re-examine those fundamentals in ways that let thousands of new ideas get experimented with around each of those fundamentals that works. So Twitter as a service works and is useful, you know, public town square, water cooler for the world, but we don't know how many other thousands of features. I, I think about this feature, um, you know, this community notes feature that, uh, that Twitter has, have you ever seen that? Yeah. That is, I think such a great example of, uh, the type of thing we should have had 10 years ago. And if Twitter were open source and you didn't have to first get a job at Twitter and then get your product prioritized within some big long list of a centralized organization, I think somebody would have built that 10 years ago. So, now that's one of the success cases, but like it, it took us too long to get there. We should have had that a long time ago. Now, what if you could have thousands of people building their own community notes features or some other feature that they think is cool? Maybe maybe it only serves a hundred thousand people. If there's a if there's a really valuable feature that only served a hundred thousand people, obviously Twitter would say we're not going to bother. It's not worth our time. But in open source, you can actually spend the mm -hmm. time and do that. So I think like a big part of the new value kind of why it could be an order of magnitude more value is just like more experimentation and it and, and kind of this new architecture enables that. So I think that's how you create a lot of new a lot of new wealth. It's just enable more people to run more experimentation and out of that, you know, some some outliers surprise us to the upside with how impactful and valuable they are. Right. And then I guess over time Twitter just becomes a Noster client and it becomes <laughs> one of many and there's these kind of all Noster for or Twitter forks, right? Like we have yeah. a thousand different Twitter versions run by a thousand different people and they can all try a thousand different ideas. And now I, although I do see, I do see two sides to this argument, one being like 
Twitter is incentivized to try and find the best version. Although they only have the the you know one company through which they can do it and they have this like long set of, you know, processes in place and they may be slow to innovate. I th- they do have obviously an incentive to come up with the best version. I wonder where you think in a, in a world where we have a thousand Twitters uh, and Twitter, the current version of it is one client on Noster. Where do you think it lands in terms of, you know, value creation? Is it, is it the most popular of the thousand? Do you think it will be in the top 10%, the top 20? Like, I'd love to hear, you know, what are the odds that by increasing the the grounds for experimentation, someone actually comes along and does what Twitter was intending to do better than Twitter or on a bigger scale than Twitter? Yeah, I I I love more experimentation in the world. I think the, you know, the new architecture that we're considering here with Noster means that um, there's a whole new set of incentives. And I think incentives really matter for driving, you know, individual behavior and organizational behavior. And so Twitter may, may be responding to its own incentives. And there's like the near-term incentives of like, are we going to make, you know, enough revenue and profit this quarter to pay the debt service is like a really important question. And how do you do that? Well, you have to run ads to do that. And like, you have to increase page views. And like, we, we you know, been prosecuted that idea has been prosecuted and discussed many times but uh that's still true i don't think that has gone away just because noster exists so is is there a good way to adapt that business like what are the the core features of that business that are adaptable to this new architecture where that business gets additional leverage by being part of this architecture and i i suspect there are real opportunities for twitter to become a noster client and to be more successful at something but I don't know that it makes it more successful at the like, you know, ad-driven business model that it currently employs. And I'm not sure how you thread the needle on, you know, kind of rebuilding the airplane at scale while you're, you know, kind of, you know, heading towards the ground quickly. You know, it, not that it can't be done, but I think it's very easy to say you could either bet on that happening or you could bet on some random person on some corner of the internet who has connectivity to GitHub figuring out something interesting. And it that feels like an easy bet to me that like somebody will, you know, somebody who has an idea will show the world that idea and it will be very powerful. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I am with you on the, uh, the experimentation side too. I do think it, that is a net uh, value add to have more people experimenting on this stuff. Um, I had an interesting conversation last week with uh, Dhruv Bansal. We were talking about the incentives on Nostra, the financial incentives. And, you know, how it, one of Dhruv's points was that right now Nostra doesn't really tap into the economic incentives of Bitcoin and Lightning. Mm-hmm. And he was worried about that. That was something he said, you know, that that might not be, if, if Nostra cannot do that, maybe that that leads to, a protocol that doesn't succeed. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how important you think it is for Bitcoin and Lightning, either as funding mechanisms or as economic incentives to be embedded in the Noster ecosystem. And that could be at the relay level, client level, the user level, sending zaps back and forth. Like how important is it that there is money 
flowing through this ecosystem. Yeah, I, I would say it's very important because there's real costs that are flowing through the ecosystem and somebody has to pay those costs and the people who are getting value are not always the people incurring the costs. So I think, you know, to, to put a, you know, a specific point on that, a relay operator has bandwidth, compute and storage costs. They have to pay that. Today it's small enough scale that hobbyists and volunteers just do it for fun. And there's some experimentation with paid relays. And I think that's pretty productive experimentation. I think the world should pay these relay operators for the value they're creating. Um, and so that probably should come from the users who demand those services. So I wouldn't say necessarily that we, I mean, I wouldn't be an advocate of racing toward, you know, somehow forcing Bitcoin and Lightning and Nostra to all be integrated. But I do think it's great to have the experimentation that we have today with things like Zaps, which let us see what does it feel like to just send value across the internet just for fun, you know, like how is it? It's kind of, it's kind of tricky. I mean, I love it and I do it every day, but it's also kind of like a little awkward to have to know, oh, set up Domus and then set up Wallet of Satoshi. And then when you want to tap the zap, it has this little hiccup while it waits to launch the Wallet of Satoshi. And then sometimes the invoice is in there. And like, is a lot of hiccups, but you can kind of squint and see how that could be ironed out. That doesn't feel like impossible. There's a lot of challenges, but like, it seems very credible that it can be done. So I think that's exciting. But I think when you have, you know, real value flowing through the internet and flowing through these relationships, you, you kind of need to, you need to have the ability to transact that value. Uh, and, and so I think it's, you know, I think, you know, Noster without Bitcoin would probably have to remain just a small hobbyist project forever. Noster with Bitcoin, I think can really, change the shape of how publishing works on the internet writ large. Um, and I do think the incentives of having digital scarcity coupled with information and communication means that you get tons of new signal on the quality of information, the quality of the nodes emitting that information, meaning the people, who is a real person, what is a bot. That's actually more easily solvable when you have digital scarcity integrated into that experience. Um, but but I would not agree that it all needs to be figured out today or we can conclude, go home, it doesn't work. I, I would say like any new technology needs to start out very simple and focused and broken in a million ways. Step one of any technology is not, hey, we've come down from on high and we've dropped a perfect functioning everything and it has no problems. It's more like if it's good, it has a million problems. Right, like you look at how how great the introduction of Bitcoin is, but a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system that settles every ten minutes, like no way, millions of problems. But there's smart people who are working on fixing those problems, right? So I think similarly, we don't have to say, oh, well, Noster's going to fail because it doesn't have the incentives worked out. I think we should say, well, Noster is good enough. It makes a lot of compromises from the other versions of the world. So we're experimenting with like a new design space here, but it's good enough that it works for small hobbyists. And we have digital scarcity. We have internet native money that's neutral. And that can now be used to help these parties, relay operators, clients, users, maybe others that get invented to be able to transact and share that value and sort of create the ledger of who 
who should pay for what types of services, but we don't have that all sorted out. We're just like, we're on the starting line still. So I, yeah. I, I, I disagree that, uh, that it, you know, it needs, I wouldn't agree that it needs to all be figured out today. I think it needs to be good enough that people use it today and that now there's energy being put in human energy, ingenuity is being put in to figure out how to make it better. Yeah. And then we kind of solve those problems as we scale and it just, it, over time, they, we iron them out and figure out the best path forward. But one thing I find interesting when, you know, I, I've seen a couple of discussions about how money might be integrated into Noster and whether that's a paid relay or whether that's, you know, charging uh, people to use a client or, uh, or taking maybe a cut of zaps, if that's possible at some point, maybe on the client side. Um, all these are basically everyone, every, every pitch or every idea is using Bitcoin and Lightning. Like there's no pitch right. that's like, let's do this with fiat money. It's, right. And that to me is kind of amazing. Like we've, we've really come so far in the Lightning space to now the point where we have this like exploding network of hundreds of thousands of users, maybe, who knows, maybe we're close to millions at this point. Um, and there's, there's now people that are like, so set on lightning payments that it's like, why would we even think of anything else? Like, of course we're going to, it's in the internet protocol. We're going to use internet payments, of course. Yep. Um, so I just think that's, that's very cool to see that there's so much enthusiasm for lightning and, and it's just like, it's become like the obvious choice. Whereas yep. I think two years ago, it was not the obvious choice. It was like, Ooh, there's really not that many people building on lightning. There's not that many lightning wallets. There's not that many users. Right. If Nostra came around two years ago, I don't know. Do you think we would have seen the same? Would we be using Lightning, or would this be, you know, would this be like an open question of what what money do we use to help this protocol succeed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we didn't have Bitcoin, it would be hard. I think without Lightning, we would, I think, just see this play out in slow motion. Like relay operators would be more hesitant to, you know, to run as light experiments as they do uh and the time you know the settlement times take longer and the tooling was not as easy for payments so i think it would you know lightning in a sense accelerates our ability to do lighter weight experiments you know faster uh you know a relay could like like you know these relays it's like here put in your npub you know and then pay 5000 sas to this this address and then you're enabled for you know a paid relay and that kind of thing would be tougher and slower in the Bitcoin world, but it could still be done, you know? So I think I'm like optimistic that lightning will accelerate what would have otherwise been slow motion. I think the whole thing would probably be, remain kind of a hobbyist endeavor forever until we have an internet native money. So if we didn't have lightning and we didn't have Bitcoin, it would be really hard to make this thing work. You know, if, if everybody's like exchanging bank details and using the SWIFT network to settle, you know, payments in US dollars between like clients and 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 servers, you know, and relays. Um, I think that would be like just it would remain hobbyist forever until an internet native money were invented. But fortunately, like the internet native money were, was invented before, and now Lightning makes it very easy to use. And now Noster just turbocharges it because the stakes are so low. Communication tool versus a payment or or money tool, the stakes are so low, like by orders of magnitude. And that makes it so easy for people to experiment and like, you know, you can do stuff, you know, you 
do stuff and you lose your private keys and you don't sweat it. It's fine. It's no big deal. Start over. I know. I mean, it's frustrating to some extent, but it's also like very low stakes. You don't have to sign up on an exchange and KYC and it doesn't have all of the the heft and weight that there is when you're talking about money. So I I think it's, um, you know, Lightning's a great accelerant to to Nostr, but it does feel like when there's value flowing and if it's going to get to some scale, it does need to, you know, we need to do a lot of experimentation and figure out what are the right incentives, who should be paid what, and what are all the competing services, and what are they going to charge, and what are the terms of payment. Like, think about it, the way paid relays work today. It's basically, you know, put in an NPUB and, um, and pay, and then, like, I don't know, like, do does the relay carry your content forever? Like, it doesn't seem like a reasonable alignment of value creation and, you know, kind of value kind of sync or demand. But it's, like, good enough. You know, I'm sure smart people can experiment all, like, what would a monthly paid relay look like? What would a pay-per-post relay look like? What would read, you know, pay-to-read relays look like? There's all kinds of experimentation. We're just at the starting line on all of this. Like, we haven't really begun these experiments in, in any real scale or earnest yet. Yeah. Well, let's let's squint a little bit here and let's think through some potential ideas because uh, I, I hear a few different business models uh, when I hear you talk about this. Like there's the one-time payment, which, you know, I, I guess pre-internet, if you were to buy anything, this is how you bought it. Just one time you buy it upfront and you yep. own it and that's it. Like shrink wrap. Uh, so there's that model that, yeah, exactly. Um and then, you know, we, we migrated on the internet to a subscription and that's like a monthly, like a SaaS model. Yep. And then there's the other, another model, which is, you know, taking a cut, uh, more like a bank, uh, taking like a two or 3% spread on something, maybe yep. like a Stripe business model or something, um, where if zaps are flowing through and you're sending a lot of zaps, maybe the client or, or someone else, or maybe a relay decides, Hey, we're going to take a percentage of whatever money flows through our system. Right. Uh, what do you think of as the most likely or most interesting kind of experiments that are happening today when it comes to monetization on Nostr? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think we're, there's so much interesting stuff going on, but I think we're at the very you know earliest stages. And I think the stuff we see today, I, I would almost, you know, conjecture that nothing we see today is actually the right answer, but it's, a bunch of good experiments that may help us discover the right answer. So, I mean, you know, the obvious ones, I think paid relays are a great example of like, there's value sync in the compute storage and bandwidth at a relay. And so paying for that is very reasonable ask from a relay operator. And there's additional signal you get on information quality as a user, if you use a paid relay. So you can like, you know, have a much, you know, much lower spam risk because there's an actual cost, you know, to participating in that relay. Um, but, but like relays as they are, are they going to work long-term as just like mom and pop businesses? Like maybe that, that wouldn't surprise me if there's some version of that, like either a personal hosted relay or, uh, maybe a community hosted relay or a topic centric one or a geographic centric one or a jurisdictional centric one. And they might have different, you know, levels of service, different pricing, but I think it's going to be challenging for a relay who is operating at like small scale to capture much margin unless they provide something that's very unique and differentiated. Because if there's, if you can just switch to the next relay over, which is kind of always the case, 
um, then there's not going to be a lot of margin in operating that relay. And so that's, again, more definitely wealth of humanity goes up because now you have, you know, censorship resistance and you have all kinds of different people trying different relay ideas. But you you don't necessarily have a good ability as a as an operator to capture a lot of value. You may capture a little bit of value, but you're always kind of just right at the edge of what everybody else is doing. And so in a sense, you know, it, I, I've sort of it's very different, but I've related it to kind of like Bitcoin mining which is like Bitcoin mining seeks the lowest cost of energy and relays kind of seek the, you know, highest performance of compute. You know, I, I think the mental model is sometimes like a data store or a database, but it may be closer mm. to like a router, like just a dumb router on the internet that doesn't really capture any excess value. You know, they're, they're priced in very competitive ways. Um, so I think that's kind of the model for relays. And so, you know, it's more, maybe it's more Cisco-like, but who's going to deploy and operate those is a little more Amazon AWS-like. And so I think it's great that mm -hmm. we'll see probably thousands, hundreds of thousands of relay operators. And I think many of them will have businesses that they can run. Um, but I think there's also going to be some really at-scale relay operation that has to happen, you know, just because people will naturally say, oh, better bandwidth, better peering agreements, you know, you know, cheaper access to power and cooling and, you know, all the stuff that makes a data center work. Well, if, if in fact, like the, you know, information routing model of a relay is the right way to think about it, then probably something like a, a data center is the way to think about an at scale relay operator. And probably somebody will put together the capital and team and go after it and, you know, Overinvest early, and then be able to provide a better service that attracts more, uh, you know, more people in the ecosystem who want to use it. So, I think there probably are going to be opportunities to serve people's needs and then to capture some value around that. But I think it's tricky from a like, uh, you know, I don't think you know one of these is just going to be like the next Google or you know the next AWS or the next Cisco or whatever because the open source nature of it is the is the thing that makes me confident that this is going to create a lot more you know um, marginal value for humanity uh but then from an investment perspective i i still kind of you know <laughs> shrug i don't know let's <laughs> let's all you know everybody who's interested in this let's talk about it and try to figure out what that looks like yeah that's a very interesting spectrum of possible outcomes right on the one end i, I look at something like bitcoin mining and i say you know this is very thin margins, very competitive. There's not, there's very few advantages. It, there may be some scale advantages, but even that is not, not enough to deter competition. Mm -hmm. Whereas then on the, on the other side, I think AWS, things like that, like that's a very valuable business for Amazon. And uh, you'd know this better than me, but like, what, what are the, what are the scale advantages that AWS has why, why, are, why can no one compete with AWS? Or at least why can a smaller operator not compete with AWS today? Right. Well, so, you know, if you sort of look at the history, there were a lot of very small uh, kind of web hosting operators, you know, 20, 30 years ago. That was a real business. Um, and I think when Amazon came in, they applied a, a lot of capital to the problem. And capital is useful for getting further out into the future than you know, then we can see just in the present. And so I think if you're, if you're a small mom and pop 
web hosting service and, you know, call it, I don't know, 1995 or something, you wouldn't necessarily predict that Amazon AWS is going to eat your lunch someday, but you also are ultimately in competition with everybody else on the internet who does this. And so if anybody is willing to, you know, invest for a day further than you or a week further than you or a month or a year, then people are going to choose the service which has invested further forward in providing, bringing that service to the world better and faster. And so there's obvious things like AWS is incredibly expensive to run, super profitable, tons of margin there, but it's not cheap to run, right? So you need to have data centers everywhere. You need to have cheap access to power, uh, not not quite as competitive as the as Bitcoin mining is like very, you know, brutally competitive in a good way. Um, but in data centers, you need cheap access to power and you need wind and cooling to keep, you know, you need some way to keep the servers cool. Um, you need a lot of people who have a lot of expertise to be able to swap machines in and out when they die. And you need to have layers of software written to make those things run efficiently. Um, there's CapEx to owning all of that equipment. There's the real estate, there's the development. I mean, running AWS is a monumental achievement. And the two-person web host from, you know, the 90s just was not investing for that, but they also didn't get, you know, they didn't become that sort of platform for the world. So I think, um, you know, I think some people might come in and and just, you know, build the relay that, you know, takes a bunch of compromises on money today in exchange for creating value that the rest of everybody will catch up to six months from now. And that feels like that becomes a little bit of a centralizing force when you start accruing more capital to build more features, more users will select those that have made that investment and there might be some uh, there might be some centralizing factor there um, that could and it doesn't mean that it has to be as dominant as AWS and even AWS you know is in is in steep competition with Azure and GCP so it's not it's not really a winner take all um, but that has much more of like a sales right. process to it whereas just you know swapping out a relay on a client is actually relatively easy and that's sort of you know by design so um, I think it'll be it'll be interesting to watch, but um, but the AWS analogy like only only really partially applies. But I think the idea of investing further ahead than what you can do today is a pattern that seems likely to emerge. Now, I want to I want to highlight a blog post that was written uh, by Max Webster, and it was uh, explaining why he was betting big on Noster, and mm -hmm. he outlined in it four different layers and business models that that could emerge. And we talked about the first one uh, being relays and resources. The next one he outlined was identity. The next one was clients. And the next one was search. Uh, and I think the, the uh, conclusion he came to was that search would be where all the biggest winners or some of the biggest winners could emerge in. What's your perspective on A, that, that structure? Do you think that's the appropriate lens to look at Nostr through those four layers? And then B, maybe you're a bit biased as well because you're coming from Google and you've seen how powerful search can be. Where do you think those, those biggest opportunities lie for developers building on Nostr? Right. Yeah, and I, you know, full disclosure, I think, I don't know if, if he had me in the byline, but Max and I talked about that concept a lot. So, you know, there's definitely, I'm oriented towards these ideas already. Uh, but, you know, I think, I, I like to think of it as almost like gravity wells or like, you know, where's water flow? And you want to just like let things go to the place where they naturally will go based on the structure of the system. 
And so like, I think to say, oh, we're going to build like the one and only client that's going to get distributed to a billion people and we're just going to monopolize the user experience. That seems unlikely to me. Like maybe something like that could occur, but I kind of doubt there's going to be a, you know, Google-like monopoly around uh, clients, but a, but a user experience, a touch point with the user experience, I think is where most of the value gets created on the internet. And so if you do control a client, that lets that gives you a lot of influence in what relays get used. And if you have a lot of influence on what relays get used, you can swap them in and out. You could run your own. You could run other types of middleware that help with like people discovery. You could run a search engine and you could direct all the traffic to your search engine. So, you know, running a client, I think is incredibly strategic, but I think it's going to feel a little bit more like web browsers than it does like social networks. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if you're familiar and I, I probably will misquote the dollar amount, but I think Google pays Apple like definitely de tens of billions of dollars. I think I want to call it $20 billion a year, maybe, or a quarter. Eh, I'll have to have to actually look, but, um, but like a very substantial amount to be the default search engine on Safari and, you know, on, on uh, iPhone. And that's just like a really privileged position that Apple has earned by building this, you know, it depends on your opinions, but great operating system, great user experience, great devices, um, you know, that, that are demanded by a lot of people around the world. And so when you own that user experience, you earn the right to uh, have influence in other parts of the ecosystem. But I would say it's like far from certain that, um, you know, where exactly value will accrue. I think the fact that clients are easily swappable to other clients suggests that I think it's probably going to be hard for one client to kind of own all of the usage the way Google owns, all, you know, roughly all of the usage in search. And I, th I think that's like a good thing for the world. Um, the, you know, I think relay, relay operators I mentioned, I think also have like a lot of different functions to serve. So, you know, they might be community-based, they might be paid with different paid models. They may, um, you know, have jurisdictional or geographical uh, choices that they've made that don't make them like the one and only choice. Um, but when it comes to search, search is kind of a thing that requires understanding of global state. And so that has a very natural centralization aspect to it. And it doesn't mean we have to see a centralized company like Google emerge from this. But, you know, almost everything in this ecosystem from clients to relays to people discovery work really well in very interchangeable, swappable, partial view way, which is, I think, one of the the beautiful things about Noster that is, you know, I don't see it spoken out loud a lot, but I think what's interesting is, you know, everybody's been talking about, oh, can you decentralize social media and do you need a blockchain? And like, it's, you know, now that we have Noster, it's obvious. I mean, to many of us, it was obviously a bad idea for a long time, but now that we have Noster, it's obvious what a good version of that is, which is blockchain is invented if you actually need to see global state and you need to have an understanding that, you know, there's no double spend happening. The only way to do that is if you have, uh, you know, some sort of mathematical visibility into the global state of the system. And in, you know, people discover you don't need global state. In in sending messages, you don't need global state. There's some person, you know, halfway around the world sending a message to somebody that's only read by other people halfway around the world that doesn't need to be part of my experience, doesn't need to cost any of the compute or storage or bandwidth that I would demand. So that sort of simplifies the problem in an interesting way. But when you go to search, you do require that global state similar to the way a blockchain 
you know, the Bitcoin blockchain needs to see the global state of the system to enforce the, you know, the um, rules and insert, ensure that there's no double spending. You know, in search, if I come up with a query in my mind, you need to have seen all of the notes in the world that could match that query and need to have understanding of the relationships between the following, you know, what does the following graph look like there? And what kinds of zaps have been transacted by which parties? Sort of what are the edges? What are the weights on those edges um, between those relationships? You need to see all of that probably a little bit a priori in order to index and be able to serve that query at that time. So I think it has like very centralizing properties to it. Doesn't mean it needs to be another, you know, Google-like monopoly. Maybe there's, you know, half a dozen or a dozen different ones. Um, it, but I think like the the necessity to serve global state to me seems like the the biggest reason that search is is going to be is going to be a centralizing function and likely a way for somebody who builds a really great search to differentiate. Mm, that's really interesting. Do you worry about the effects of centralization on Noster? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, worry may be one way to put it. Um, I, what I like about Noster is that it's not controlled by anybody and that it is public domain. And so I appreciate that characteristic about it. And that's why, that's why I like to spend my time on it. If it were just another company that were successful, I would say like, okay, you know, fine enough, you know, good luck. They can go on their way. But like, that's not what gets me passionate about it. What gets me passionate about it is the, you know, the 10 X to hundred X wealth for humanity. And that works with an open system like Noster. So I believe within that open system, there's likely to be some centralizing forces. And I think that's just kind of like, I think it's actually good in certain ways, but I just think that the centralizing forces ideally don't become so dominant that they monopolize the space and just kind of recentralize, you know, kind of new boss, same as the old boss, you know, recentralize around something like search where the whole ecosystem has to align around it in a, in a way that kind of, you know, centralizes the whole ecosystem. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's super likely. I think, you know, it, we, but we have a, a new set of primitives we have a green field to explore over the next, you know, decade or two. I mean, I don't think this is going to play out in the next six months. This is like a long-term exploration. Um, but I think, given the new primitives, we're going to get to see, and that's that's what I that's what I'm excited about. And I don't really worry too much. I think you know things will happen as they happen, and it's very voluntary. And if I, I think the people who who do have the voices in the system and kind of the more the leadership of ideas, um, I think today are built around this ethos of kind of voluntarism and, um, and, you know, uh, decentralization. So I, I would say, I think we're off to a good start, not that it couldn't be corrupted, but, um, but I, I think, you know, we have a good foundation to start. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just a quick message from our sponsor, Stackwork. Stackwork is a lightning powered platform for generating high quality transcripts of all your audio or video content. They combine AI engines and hundreds of human workers all over the world who are paid over the Lightning Network to assemble these transcripts. And that's what lets Stackwork create better, faster, and less expensive transcripts. To see the results for yourself, you can check out my personal website where I host transcripts for all my podcast episodes. 
If you want to learn more about Stackwork, visit stackwork.com. That is S-T-A-K-Work.com. When, now, when you think about you know, building on Noster, integrating Lightning payments over the next decade, this is a long road. We're, we're at the earliest stages, as you said earlier. Um, what are the most interesting unexplored areas of Noster and Lightning that you'd love to see builders focus on, but that no one's really taken a stab at yet? Well, yeah. So there's a few, a few I'd say, sort of high-level concepts. One is any of those centralizing functions, we don't really know how to deal with them yet. And so, you know, like people discovery is a real problem and it's a real centralizing function. So most of the ethos says, eh, I don't want to touch people discovery. That's going to cause the problems of the past, but it also limits ability of a new user to adopt. Like I was just, I was um, just recording a video with a friend of mine where I was explaining Nostra to him the other day. And he just tweeted a, about an hour ago. He just tweeted like, Hey, how do I find people to follow? So I sent him a note that I had written with a bunch of NPubs. And I was like, here's, here's a starter pack. Right. But it's not um, it's <laughs> it's not so easy to get started, right? So I think some people I'd love to see more people exploring things that, while they do have a whiff of centralization to them, they also can improve the user experience to help more people get it, but where people aren't beholden to those centralizing points. Um, so I think that's one area that you know I'd say given the ideology we haven't seen as much experimentation in and i think we've seen things like um you know some of the stuff like nostr.directory explores this um and i think my understanding is like hive.1 did this kind of thing for twitter and is excited about doing something like that in the nostr ecosystem so i think we're starting starting to see some people explore that um but but that's one that's under underdone and then another thing i think that's underdone is anything that's not a twitter clone so we haven't seen a tremendous amount of like experimentation around like what else outside of kind of the, you know, cloning Twitter features. Um, and so I think, you know, maybe, maybe like zaps is, a you know, a feature that's tightly coupled to a Twitter clone, which I think is like really exciting, but like, what could you do with zaps? So I've been, I've been, you know, rattling, uh, banging the drum about this idea of like, I want to see zapper news. I call it, it's kind of like hacker news or stacker news, but show me all the, zaps in a kind of community like you know curated feed just show me the top things from my network that have gotten the most zaps in the last day so that i kind of can see what's going on so it's like another view of the information flowing through kind of the the global chat room that is Noster, but um but it's kind of like a new experience around that um so you know kind of things that are outside of the direct purview of a of a twitter clone i saw this one is it called abla i think which um which is kind of like a medium clone built on Noster. So stuff like that is like, I'm excited to see people now starting to explore outside. Um, I don't know if you saw the stuff that uh, Wallet Scrutiny did. So Wallet Scrutiny is a project where they have a website and they you know, basically review wallets, but they integrated a comments board or they're integrating a comments board where you can use your Noster NPUB to write comments. So it's almost like the old, I don't know if you ever saw that service called Discuss from a long time back. It was kind of like a pluggable blog comment widget that you could drop into your blogs that anybody could comment, but it connected to their other identities. Um, I think that's a really exciting idea oh, cool. that um, you, you're starting to see people experiment with. And then, you know, like I think marketplaces 
is a big one where we haven't seen much yet. So like, is there a simple way to do, say, you know, to buy and sell Bitcoin locally via a, a set, almost like an order book for, you know, replacing some of the needs of something like a local Bitcoin, which just, you know, recently, I think, uh, terminated the their future. So like, could you do that kind of thing over Noster and give like, you know, bids and asks in different locations and build like the marketplace infrastructure to enable that kind of exchange? Or something like, you know, like, I mean, the function that Facebook Marketplace serves in the world, um, I think that kind of thing could be done in a more open way. Um, you know, kind of a marketplace for goods, and there's probably other services that could be could be listed. So I, I would say I'm like generally a little bit more biased towards pure information services for now, because I think there's just like, once you start touching the real world, it gets a lot messier and slower slower cycles to innovate. So if you try to do like, maybe like a, you know, an, an Uber like dispatch network, you know, taxi like dispatch network on Noster, like love it. If somebody's innovating, they're great. But like, to me, that feels like a more challenging thing to experiment with today versus, you know, start with a Twitter ad payments, do blogging, do, you know, a Reddit, like, you know, experience, do messaging. I think messaging and email do actually, I love the. I think um, I think Jack also did a bounty for a GitHub like service. So, um, could you yes. do like a, a GitHub like service on Noster? I think that's a really interesting and exciting one. But the more that is pure information, the more you can just like experiment really quickly, get really quick adoption when you do find something that's useful. Um, and I think messaging and email, you know, could get reinvented. I know the DMs, you know, are you know a little fraught with some <laughs> privacy problems today, but I think my understanding is there's nothing that limits it from being able to be fixed, but that's not really the design of what, what Noster is built for. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, how do we do DMs and messaging in the future? Could we have an inter a fully global interoperable messaging service? Like, I think that will exist and I don't think we have it today. And I don't think it's going to be like started from, you know, uh, an app you download from the app store and log in with like a phone number. Like, I think it's just going to be more public private key pair based um so yeah just I ideas like that but I, I would say anything in information communication like pure digital world that doesn't touch physical world it you know sort of look at any service and you know imagine how could you reinvent those there's just a lot of running room yeah for sure you know that last point you made about a place where you can get all your messages like a like a global message hub uh, I saw there, there's one app. I can't remember the name of it. It's it's trying to do that with like iMessage and Facebook and Twitter and all and all your kind of like web two messaging. I can't remember the name of oh, it yeah. now, I think but it, text, I think it's in beta. It Text.com um, or something. But it would be really cool. Yeah, it might be tech. Yeah, that might be it. And it's just kind of like compiles everything into one inbox for you and you get all your messages there. That'd be really cool on Noster. And then you could also take it to the next level and bring money in that yep. same experience. So like all your messages and all the zaps and all the tips and boosts and money you get from, you know, your podcasting or your content creation on Stacker News, on yep. Noster, all of it flows into one spot. Beautiful. That that would be, I would be the first to sign up for something like that. Yep. Oh, another one is crowdfunding. We haven't, we haven't seen crowdfunding yet really work in this environment. I think that's another one. You know, we, I think the Canadian trucker situation from what was it, a year, year ago or so, uh, I think that you know yeah. sort of showed demand and interest in such a thing, but the centralized providers showed the cracks in that approach. But I think crowdfunding, you know, for both kind of 
the Canadian trucker freedom issue, but then also crowdfunding for for artists and creatives and music. Like instead of just paying me for what I do, can you pay me for a future share in the thing we all want to make together? And, you know, crowdfunding ties a little bit into this next point that I want to make about funding Nostra development in general. This is something that I think is still an, a bit of an open question. What is the best way to accomplish this, right? We saw Jack came in with about 14 Bitcoin. He's he's kind of like seeded the Nostra ecosystem a little bit. I think the Human Rights Foundation just gave 50000 I believe it was $50,000 to uh, a Domus developer, uh, William Kasserin. So we're starting to see some grants and bounties yeah. emerge, but there's this big uh, question I think that still exists about what is the right funding mechanism for Noster? Is it bounties? You you come from the traditional venture capital side. You've seen that, the success that can come there. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the pros and cons and, and that spectrum of like on one end, you know, uh, piece by piece bounties for solving individual problems. And on the other end, large venture capital checks for, you know, establishing multiple years of runway for a company. Where do you yeah. think this all unfolds when we think about Nostra development? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, these are, these are great questions and this is all, I think what we're trying to figure out real time. Uh, you know, the, the bounty ecosystem is super exciting because, you know, you can post, you know, very specific contained ideas or even somewhat open-ended, but you have like fairly constrained timeframes on which they can be delivered. And then you have like somebody who can adjudicate, yes, this worked as we hoped. And yes, this didn't. And this served the need that I had in mind when I originally wrote the bounty. So I think that's like a, a newly emergent ecosystem. Um, but I think it, it, it's a, it's great application for certain types of problems, but it's not like the one tool for all future development. I think it's like a very useful new tool, but it's, it doesn't, I think, do everything. And so, you know, I'd say like the abstracts that it misses are, um, it's harder to do long-term projects with um, where the, the beneficiaries of such projects are very diffuse and where there's a lot of uncertainty because ultimately a bounty is, is expecting the developer to burden the full risk of whether they can get it done or not. Um, which I think shortens timeframes on average. And so if you can find ways to um, pool that risk with among builders and among potentially capital pools that want to see that thing exist and where there's a potential to have some sort of value capture, um, that starts to feel more like the way sort of maybe the angel ecosystem and venture capital work. Um, but but I, I would suspect that it doesn't play out quite the same if if not everything is just some C corp based in, you know, US C corp based in Delaware with a, you know, hundred points of equity on a cap table, um, you know, it might be that venture capital is not the right model, but I think something that shares the risks of the people who are good at developing and who want to invest in their, in, you know, they want to invest their, uh, you know, their sweat equity, their, their own time in building something, um, I don't think they should be limited just because, because uh, you know, they shouldn't be limited or required to take all of that risk. They should be able to share that risk. And I think we don't have the models yet for how that risk should be shared. And I think if you go like to the very extreme, you know, the extreme outside of venture capital, where it's like extreme long time frames, extremely diffuse beneficiaries, you see kind of how basic science research works, which is mostly you know U.S. government funded basic science, is sort of the way you achieve that, and that's how you do things like you know discover you know, 
mRNA or CRISPR, or you, you know, you know, historically, you know, would send rockets to the moon and stuff. So, uh, you know, I think it really depends on a lot of time frames and and needs. But I think we do need new models now. I don't know exactly what those models look like because the the kind of USC Corp thing has sort of been well adjudicated. We've run through adversarial environments where like the C Corp is not quite, you know, the people operating it are not behaving properly. And so we have a judicial system, which keeps that in check. Um, and I suspect that same pattern doesn't play out exactly the same here, but unless we've tested things in kind of these adversarial environments, we don't really know if the ideas work or we don't know how they break. And so I think, you know, the naive us, you know, we, we sort of can naively go and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we just had like everything was decentralized and, you know, everybody gets a vote or something on the direction of this project or was the bounty achieved? And like at a high level, those are exciting ideas, but but until they're tested in adversarial, adversarial environments, we don't actually know where they break down. We can predict some, but we won't really see how it plays out. So if you sort of want to have capital partners pool their resources with with um, sweat equity or build partners and try to make something that a lot of people want in the world, but where they want to share that risk, you know, how do they capture the upside and who gets what votes or how do you sort of even structure that thing? It's probably not a, a, a traditional board or traditional kind of, you know, minority, uh, minority investor with, you know, maybe some additional investment rights for preferred shareholders. You just don't have those structures. And I'm not suggesting we should reapply those or use those in all cases. I think they work well enough in today's world to accomplish some of these things, but they also have deep flaws. So we probably need to invent something new, but I don't know what that new thing is yet. And and I think in order to know if we've got the right one, it can't just be that the soundbite works well. It has to be that we can test it in an adversarial environment, hopefully with low stakes, and we can see where it breaks and how it breaks. And we can try to patch it and make it better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I think there is a growing need for new models fundraising, not only in Nostra but also in the Lightning ecosystem and even the crypto ecosystem more broadly. I, I think about the the issue of like setting up a U.S. corporation. There's a lot of companies that don't even want to be in the U.S. don't don't want anything to do with the U.S. Right? There's a lot of mm -hmm. companies that are run by anonymous developers that don't want their name known for privacy yep. concerns. There's there's a load of concerns that seem to be piling up uh, with traditional funding mechanisms and uh, maybe maybe we're right for a new one. Um, now I know we're running out of time here. I, I have a ton more questions for you, <laughs> but maybe we'll have to save that for another time. Um, let's jump into the lightning round real quick. Got a few okay. rapid fire questions to finish off this episode. All right, first one. What is one book that has meaningfully changed your view of the world? One book that has meaningfully changed my view. I mean, I guess, you know, geez, <laughs> picking one. I, I mean, I think I was, I was surprised when I, when I first read, you know, the sovereign individual, it's probably a bit trite with, uh, within this ecosystem and audience to say that. Um, but I think that's uh, pretty foundational to some really new ideas that are kind of being played out and explored real time. Um, <laughs> another trite one that's relevant to our conversation, of course, is the Bitcoin standard. I think it's, you know, uh, really 
re-examines a bunch of assumptions and helps us understand kind of some core principles. Um, but uh, but those are a little too obvious. So <laughs> if, I, if I tell you about the science, no, that's that those I'm are great ones. I, I, I mean, I've read them both. I thought I thought both were great. Uh, so yeah, that, that's a good choice. Um, in five years, how many people do you think will be on Noster? Five years is a long time. It sounds short, but that's long. Yeah, in technology, it's a tough guess. How many people will be on Noster? And we're talking about like. Like profiles with yeah. bios. <laughs> How many human beings? I would I would guess I think if if it's succeeding as an experiment, which I think it, it will, um, I would guess we're past a hundred million. Pro- probably well past that. That's awesome. Uh I was gonna I was gonna guess fifty million. So you're yeah. uh, even more optimistic. Same, I like same it. ballpark, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, when when exponentials grow so quickly, it's like you can you can miss by a lot by just being one one or two yep. years off. Um, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're really good at predicting linearly, but we just have a hard time sort of, you know, kind of imagining exponentials well. Yeah, a hundred percent. If you could only hold one asset for the next decade and it could not be Bitcoin, what asset would it be? Uh, shares in Google. Fair enough. <laughs> If you could only invest in one Noster company or founder builder, the, the terms are kind of fluid today because most most of the Noster projects are run by just one or two people. If you could only invest in one Noster project today, which would it be? I've been really impressed with the pace of work that JB fifty five has done with Damas. Um, it's it's incredible how much that one individual has accomplished. And, uh, and so I think that has enough breakout and enough optionality for where it could go in the future. And I have enough just appreciation watching it from the sidelines, you know, as kind of an enthusiastic user, but not a, not a direct contributor. Um, to me, you know, what I see out there today, that's, I'd say that looks to me like the, the most interesting thing. Nice. And then finally, who is one person that you'd like to give a shout out to for doing great work in either the Bitcoin, Lightning, or Noster ecosystem? Only one person. Oh my. Well, I I mean, I'd have to shout out uh Steve Lee because um, you know, he's the the lead at Spiral. Um, but I think he he's a, a good friend of mine from back at, at Google. We overlapped. And so we've sort of prosecute the world together in whatever our beliefs are at the time and he's just like an incredibly rigorous thinker almost to the point of a frustratingly rigorous thinker i'd call it (laughs) um but he's really um you know kind of gave up a really comfortable job and began a voluntary work that crafted what's now a really impactful um role in helping usher this new technology forward um, so yeah, I, I would shout out Steve Lee Moneyball. Love it. Uh, and then finally, before you go, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah. So I have a website at curiousdk.com. That's curious D as in David, K as in King.com. And that's a, a, a blog. It has a link to this Noster Talks podcast that I just launched this week. Um, it has a link to my YouTube where I post a lot of videos for uh, you know conversations that I have with people building in the ecosystem. Amazing. 
Thank you so much for taking the time today and I hope we can do it again soon. In the last seven days, you guys sent in 5,516 sats. That came in from 16 different supporters. Run through the top five real quick. We have B Lightning who sent in 2,450 sats. Rage underscore AF sent in 1,024 sats. An anonymous user sent in 490 sats. Koala Rubro on Breeze sent in 464 sats. And Michael Matulef sent in 245 sats. We also had a few comments and uh, clips created. So people have been creating clips of the show, which is really cool. On Fountain, I can see that. Um, we also have a couple of comments, though. Mike P said, awesome episode, just found the show. We'll be coming back in response to episode 89 with Ben Carmen. We had an anonymous user who said, thank you for the episode, Kevin. Dhruv is an outstanding communicator of ideas. I would love to hear more from him in the future. Thank you. Th that episode was uh, incredible. I just got to sit back and just absorb Dhruv's ideas. So I agree. Dhruv is an incredible communicator. Thank you for the thousand sats and for the kind words. Um, we had another comment. Great episode with a thumbs up. B Lightning sent a lightning emoji, sent 5,000 sats. And we had a couple of people create clips of the show. So thank you to everyone who's been showing support. I really appreciate it. Got a few more videos coming up for you pretty soon. So thank you again and can't wait to see what you guys send in this week.